Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. A reminder that the festival returns from May 19th to 27th, 2018. For this week's episode of the podcast, we're revisiting an event from the 2017 festival, featuring Richard Ford in conversation with Brendan Barrington. Thank you very much. Um, It's a huge privilege uh, to introduce one of the truly essential writers of our time, Richard Ford. Many of the great writers who came from the American South are known for writing about a single place, and in many cases for remaining in that place for their entire lives. Um, Richard Ford, by contrast, um, was born in Jackson, Mississippi, um, which is the same city where the great Eudora Welty uh, lived her whole life. Um, But he now lives a few miles as the gull flies from Elizabeth Strout on the coast of Maine, um, and in between, Um, I believe he did a fair amount of fishing out west with Raymond Carver. He lived for some years in New Orleans, um, where his wife, uh, Christina, was the city planning director. Um, And uh, he's taught in universities all over the United States and indeed outside it, including a stint at Trinity College Dublin. If you bought his novel, The Sports Writer, in 1986, you would have read the thoughts of a man, Frank Bascom, born in Mississippi, living in New Jersey, and going on a uh, a trip for the week, a weekend trip to Detroit. If just one year later you bought Rock Springs, you read a collection of stories that were set mainly in Montana um, and full of characters who are coming or going or thinking of coming or thinking of going, um, sometimes very great distances. And of course, there are short stories set in Paris and a novel set largely in <coughs> Saskatchewan. Um, but Even more important and significant, I think, than the geographic range of his work um, is its genuine stylistic and tonal range. Um, One reviewer of Rock Springs put it very well, I think. Um, That reviewer said that Richard Ford, quote, achieves his end in voices that vary from swamp deep to mirror flat. And I think that captures something that's true of him and that's true of very few other major writers. He was the first, and I I think still the only, writer um, to win both the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award for the same book, his great novel, Independence Day, published in 1995. His new book is called Between Them, Remembering My Parents, and it's remarkable for a few reasons, I think. Um, Firstly, it's his first nonfiction book after a dozen works of nonfiction, uh, of of fiction, sorry. and I think it accesses a tone and sources of emotion um, and ways of seeing that are a bit different from anything um, uh, he's done yet in the stories and the novels. Um, so I really look forward to talking to him about this book and related matters. But first, um, join me again. I think it can't be done often enough um, in uh, welcoming Richard Ford. <laughs> to begin perhaps by um, quoting you to yourself, um, not from this book, um, uh, but from the beginning of chapter two of The Sports Writer, um, where Frank Bascom says, all we really want is to get to the point where the past can explain nothing about us and we can get on with life. 
In my view, Americans put too much emphasis on their pasts as a way of defining themselves, which can be death-dealing. I know I'm always heartsick in novels. Sometimes I skip these parts altogether. Sometimes I close the book and never pick it up again. When the novelist makes his clanking, obligatory trip into the Davy Jones locker of the past. Now, and then of course the joke in, in that novel is that Frank Bascom goes on to tell us at, at some <laughs> length about, about his own past, the 30 odd years leading up to um, the moment at which the narration of, of that novel begins. Um, I assume that his two-mindedness about that sort of delving into the past is, is um, something that you, to some degree, share, um, that you're ambivalent about it. Um, but I, it's obviously in writing this book, you've, you've decided that, that that's somewhere you want to go, um, writing about your father and your mother um, and your own earliest memories of them. Um, could you maybe, just to establish um, some basic context before we dig a bit deeper, um, tell us about your mother and your father, where they came from, um, how they met each other, and the beginning of their story. Yes. Um, I, let me say something about that passage from the sportswriter, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, <clears throat> um, I, I suppose my preoccupation with not letting the past determine me or determine how I can be perceived or how I think or how I'm anything had to do with, with the fact that I did grow up in Jackson, Mississippi, and, and, and it, was a big, it was a bigoted, racist, small-minded, violent place, uh, irrespective of the fact that Eudora did live up the street. Um, and, and, but I understood really early in my life that, <clears throat> that I didn't want the place where I was from and its past to be the determiner of, of how people thought about me. Because uh, those were bad things, and I knew they were bad things, and, 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 and there was a great deal of sentiment, as, we, as you will know, and as, as anyone knows, that, 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 that where you're from determines who you are. I mean, Ireland is as much of a victim of that as, as anybody is, and, and, I just, and, and because where I was from was so bad and, and so unsatisfactory to me at a, at a young age. That I, I, I left, of course. I did the cowardly thing in 1962, um, which was to leave, whereas uh, the real heroes, in my estimation, stayed. But I, I didn't want to stay. I went to, to Michigan to go to college, and thank God I did, because I met Christina there. <laughs> uh, but um, that, that is, that's been a primary preoccupation of mine uh, all along. I'll, I'll determine who I am. I, I will say who I, who, who, what I believe. I'll, I'll, as much as I can, coerce you into seeing me the way I want to be seen, rather the way than let the, let the past do yeah. that. That said, I am from Mississippi, and there's just no getting around <laughs> it. And, 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 some, and I've, I've, I've tried to leach out all the bad parts and leave only the good, and there are good, but, but I, I'm, I'm only partly successful. Okay, about my, my mother and father. Uh, <clears throat> My mother and father's life is, is independent of my life. They were married for 15 years before I was born. They were from little tiny places in West Arkansas. My mother particularly was from a scabrous little uh, town and was born in a house that didn't even have a floor up on the Arkansas, uh, well, in that little corner of Arkansas that borders Missouri and Oklahoma. And um, my father, the Irish, directly Irish part of my existence, uh, they were from West 
Arkansas from a farming background. And, and, and they, each of them in their own way, and, and they didn't have abused childhoods, but they had kind of rough and tumble childhoods. My father's father committed suicide when he was 16. And I think my mother had a pretty hard time with her stepfather in some ways I don't even know about. But when they found each other, when they met each other, which was in 1927, I, I, I believe, I think they just looked at each other and thought, oh, Christ, finally. <laughs> and they just um, uh, loved each other. And, and that's, that's really what happened. They loved each other, and then the rest followed. Yeah. Nothing ever changed in their life on, on that particular score. My father worked through the Depression. He had a job. They had places to live. They had a car. They had money. You know, one of the interesting things about, about literature is, is that it kind of tries as best it can. Thank you very much. It tries. Thank you very much, Owen. Thank you. <laughs> um, it tries as best it can to, to, to penetrate the conventional wisdoms of such um, cultural generalities as during the 30s, it was the Dust Bowl, and everybody who lived in that part of the world, which was about 20 miles from where my mother was from, they were destitute, and they were having to leave and move to California, and they didn't have, you know, their, ha their crops were blown away. And, but the fact of the matter was, that wasn't true of my family. Mm. That my father was industrious, even if he wasn't terribly talented, and he worked, and he had a job. And um, that, that was how that life went. So it was, it was of interest to me in talking about my parents, to try to particularize that deviation yep. from the cultural platitude, really. Yep. And you've written this book in two parts. Um, the first part about your mother, and one part about your mother, one about your father. Um, the part about your mother was written shortly after her death, I believe, in yeah. the early 80s. Right. Um, what prompted that um, from, from a an otherwise fiction writer, what prompted you to well, write about her life as nonfiction? I, I think you can make too much out of the difference between fiction and nonfiction in one, in one way. I mean, nonfiction relies on facts. Fiction relies on stuff that's artifice and is made up. But it's about writing sentences and choosing words and trying to imagine the effect that your sentence is going to have. So I, I, for, for me, if you're a writer, you write. And sometimes you write this way, and sometimes you write that way, but mostly it feels a lot like what it always feels like. Um, so, so but, but why I wrote about my mother after she had died was that I missed her. Uh, five years after she had died, uh, I had written a sports writer in, in the intervening years, and Christina and I were living in Montana, and then we were living in Mississippi, and, um, and I, just, I just realized one day that I had written, this, this, is, this might interest someone. Um, after my mother died in 1981, <clears throat> I got busy writing the sports writer starting in the spring of 1982, and, and um, all of the con conjuries of, of sort of emotion that went into that book uh, uh, were to some extent drawing upon a sadness that was my sadness at my mother's death. But I didn't want to write about that then. I wanted to write about a guy who had a teenage son and who had died, and, and, and another son who had died. And, and that sadness, which was about something entirely different from my mother's death and Christina's and my missing her, that sadness was what floated into the sports writer in a completely transmogrified way. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I, miss, I miss my mother, and I thought, well, um, mm, 
my memories are going to begin to diminish if I don't sit down and write it. And mm. I, Christina and I knew somebody named Pat Towers who was an editor at Vanity Fair, and she said, why don't you write an essay about your mother? I said, oh, boy, I'd love to do that. I did. Okay. You know, quite normal-seeming decision. Yeah. And then just a couple of years ago, I think, uh, you wrote... A year ago. A year ago, okay. A year uh, ago. You, you wrote um, the part about your father. Right. Was that prompted by anything in particular? Well, it was prompted by, by having him as a father. Uh, <laughs> and it was prompted by having written the essay about my mother, which I thought worked out okay. Yeah. And, and, and wanting then to think I could write a book about both my parents, because I hadn't seen a book exactly like that mm. before. And, and my, but my, the, 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 the writerly problem was that my father died when I was 16, and then many years passed after that till I got around to thinking about writing about him. And prior to that, he was gone all the time from Monday to Friday when I, he wasn't at home. And so I thought, well, how do you write a, a, a memoir about a father who was not there very much? And, and that just right away posed a, a problem for me that I didn't know how to surmount. But I didn't despair. I didn't think, well, you can't do that, because I wasn't willing to give up on the project. I don't like to start projects that I don't finish. And so I just thought, well, take your time. And I took 30 years. <laughs> but what I did in 30 years was simply keep my notebook close to me and write down everything that I thought about my father. Everything, everything, everything. Things he said, things he, way he smelled, what his clothes looked like, what his car looked like how my mother regarded him, things we did, uh, e everything. And what I found after 30 years of accumulating this was that there was quite a lot. Mm. It was 300, 400 notes. And I thought, well, somehow or another, even though he was gone a lot, that absence is going to be realizable as a presence. Mm. And I thought that was, I had the conceit. I thought absence can be a presence. It's, so, it's sort of was a saleable conceit to me, but I didn't know what to do with it. It's one thing to, to say you know how to write a book. It's different to write a book. So um, I, it took me a couple more years after I had fallen on that uh, conceit mm. to, to actually write the first sentence. And, and I didn't know how to write the first sentence, but the first sentence in, in this book about my father is the first sentence that I wrote. And when I did that, it just kind of sprung like that. Somehow all of those pieces started fitting, fitting together. So in a sense, you had, you had been writing it for 30 years plus. You could say that in a fanciful way. Um, so it reads like that. You'd never, if, if you hadn't said, if you hadn't explained in the foreword um, the, the kind of genesis of this book, of the two parts of this right. book, I don't think any reader would guess that they, the two parts had been written had a remove of, of three decades plus. Well, that's really good. Um, you know, <clears throat> I, I mean, I do think in, in, a, in, the, in the maturation of a writer, and certainly at 73 I have matured, <laughs> uh, that it shouldn't be that, you know, five years ago you read a sentence of yours and you think, who the hell wrote that? Not, that's terrible. I mean, there, should, there should be some kind of uniformity mm. Uh, and, and through it all, at, at least uniformity as to quality. Uniformity as to effects might not be uh, consistent. Sure. Well, speaking of effects and sentences <coughs> and tone and maturity, um, it would be lovely to hear you read from this book. Oh, um, there, there's one of my favorite passages um, uh, is about your father, 
And I don't want to say really anything more about it because it, it, it speaks, I think, entirely for itself. Um, we might talk a little bit about it after. All right, but I'll do that. I have Thank to stand you. up, do this. I can't sit down and read. <clears throat> This is from the first of these two, which is called Gone, Remembering My Father. My father's temper now became a feature I learned about firsthand. A man can be courteous, affable, and shy, but still have furies. And my father's furies doubtless flamed from the silent dysfunctions of his heart and a maddening sense of frailty. Possibly, too, he was depressed but he wouldn't have known that word. He practiced no hobbies or sports, entertained no committed interests or enthusiasms apart from work and us. He was impulsive <clears throat> and not adept at most endeavors requiring patience and would quickly lose his temper. He could not make a TV work when he wanted it to, which suddenly would infuriate him. He could not reliably start a power lawnmower, which also infuriated him. He could not properly hang a punching bag in the utility room of the suburban house we eventually moved into. It fell at the first blow. He tried to paint by numbers as a form of relaxation, but did not finish his portrait of Golden Palomino. He could not erect a basketball backboard so that when I got older I could gain a place on the school team. He could not operate a rotary barbecue or string up a hammock when he half-reluctantly took me to a dingy pay-to-fish lake in the Delta Bee Lake or onto crowded, sweltering, deep-sea excursions into the Gulf of Mexico. Neither of us caught anything, and both grew sullen, and in his case, ill-tempered. He'd rather have been home with my mother. Once, he went <clears throat> Once we went to the Natchez Trace to cut a Christmas tree illegally, he wanted a small tree, I wanted a large one, and prevailed. But when he brought when we brought the tree inside the house and could not fit it into our low-ceilinged living room, my own temper went off. I dragged the tree outside to shorten its trunk with a handsaw. My father came behind me in a fit of anger all his own. He took the saw away, snatched the Christmas tree, and cut it off at the top, thereby, in my view, maiming it. I then grabbed the mango tree back and, as well as I could, threw it at him. Whereupon he gave me a whipping I do not now want to think too much about because of its suddenness and ferocity. There weren't many such events, but this was not the only one. I cannot remember over the years my father ever explicitly teaching me much except to ride a bicycle and how the column shifter worked on his three-speed Ford Coupe. He did not teach me to read and did not that I remember ever read to me. He did not teach me to tie knots or to hunt or to shoot a gun or how to start a campfire or how to change a spark plug or a tire. He may have tried to teach me how to bait a hook but it may have been not the correct way since it never worked out that a fish was caught. <clears throat> he did not take me to movies or to the swimming pool. He didn't talk to me about sex or girls, about religion, about his own worries, about current events or politics, other than that he and my mother had liked Roosevelt, though they never said why. I don't know what he thought about racial matters or about what I should grow up to be someday when, of course, he wouldn't be there. 
I do not recall ever having an actual discussion with him. I don't remember him asking me what was going on in my mind when we walked down the street side by side to the post office to mail up his expense reports on Sunday mornings or when we were in the car driving his sales route. I cannot imagine what we said. School for me was far from easy, but he never, to my memory, asked me about my grades or what subjects I liked. These were my mother's concerns. He must have thought <clears throat> in all these goings and comings performed together. Of course, things were said. Passing life was observed. Feelings voiced, views and amusements shared. Necessarily, they would. But these are lost to time now and to superseding events. I wish I could remember them, if only because not remembering them portrays our life in a way it wasn't makes him and me together seem to be lonely and remote from each other in a way I honestly believe we weren't. When I think about my father through the haze of all these poorly recollected details, my truest and most affectionate assessment of him was that he was not a modern father. Indeed, even then, when I knew him best, he seemed to be from another place and another time far away. Still, <clears throat> he accompanied me and my mother to the Baptist Hospital when I was eight, <clears throat> had my tonsils and adenoids out on the same day. Once he patiently doctored me with a menthol inhaler when I had asthma, though the inhaler suddenly malfunctioned and sprayed hot water in my face, which made him cry. He <clears throat> bought me more than one dog and at least three cats, one of which my mother backed over in the driveway. There were several Easter chicks, two ducks, and two rabbits, all of which subsequently vanished. Once, <clears throat> he once, in a while, took me to a high school football game, though we knew no one playing and always left early. He bought me a baseball glove, a cheap one, and now and then would play catch in the backyard, though he was not good at that and never did it for long and never seemed to enjoy it. Once, when I played especially poorly on my Babe Ruth League team, it happened to be on the rare night when he came. In the dark car on the way home, he seemed disappointed and told me I needed to play better, but then said, it's all right. Later, when I was in junior high, he would regularly drive me to school on his way out of town on Mondays, but was never there on other days. <clears throat> <laughs> you know, I, I suppose when I, when I hear that passage, and I wrote that, uh, when I hear that passage, you can, I, I can almost think that, that the story of the arc of life between him and me was somewhat impoverished. <clears throat> I love my father intensely, and... Um, that little dichotomy in which, <clears throat> again, the conventional wisdom argues in one way, and the facts that only I know argue against the other is worth, is worth understanding in life, I think, which is why I, I wrote this book. I mean, I wrote this book in part because my parents were people who, who, who made very little happen except me and their life together. And, um, and, and yet, it seemed important to testify, to bear witness to their small existence, and by virtue of having them in my mind and 
in my heart all the time I was writing them to bring them closer to me and by doing that to find a virtue. Um, and, and, and the virtue was, and I think I can articulate it apart from the, the text itself, is that <clears throat> among the three of us, uh, what they cared about most was each other. And, and, and what I was given was the love that they had for each other. They shared that love with me. And so it wasn't that, that I was out of the loop. It was that I was in the loop, but the loop was about them. They were the adults in the room every day. I was the child every day. And I don't think that's a bad way to be brought up. Indeed. One of the... There aren't a lot of, as you say, big events in this book. They weren't people, as you say, who made a lot of things happen. Um, this is a book of the sorts of memories you've just, um, you've just read to us. Um, but one of, the, one of the, <coughs> the big events in this book is the death of your father. Yeah. Um, when you were still a teenager. Yeah. Um, and uh, he'd had a heart attack about 12 years earlier. But... He's 50, he's 55 years old when he died. Yeah. Young. And he was, I think you were young enough at the time he had the heart attack that you, you weren't, so to speak, on alert. You didn't think he was, you weren't thinking no. he was about to die. I wasn't a questioning child. My father had had a heart attack. He seemed to get over it, so he, he wasn't going to have a heart attack again. Yeah. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a curious little boy. Yeah. I just thought everything was normal. And um, it came as a shock, I believe, to your mother as well. Mm. Terrible. I mean, <clears throat> my father died in my arms. He died on a Saturday morning, uh, the 20th of February, 1960, and I was in bed asleep, and I heard my mother calling my father's name, and she kept calling my name until she woke me up. She wasn't trying to wake me up. She was trying to wake him up. And so I got out of bed, and, and when it went down the hall, and there he was in his bed, breathing with difficulty, and, and, I, and I got up into the bed with him, and... and, and shook him and, and breathed into his mouth, and then he was dead. That's just what he was, or he died at that moment, whichever. And then she was hysterical. She was hysterical, and, uh, she, and she didn't stay hysterical, but she stayed affected in a way mm. that, that, that never relented yeah. through the rest of her life, which went on 20 years. I mean, they were simply made for each other. Mm. And we'll, I think, I hope we'll talk a bit more a little bit later about <coughs> your mother, well, well, we'll definitely be talking more about your mother and specifically about her, um, her life after your father's death. But I wanted first, while, while we're at this point in the story, um, to ask you about a sentence that, that I found fascinating and, and that sort of stands alone in, in the book. Um, uh, you write, had my father lived beyond his appointed time, I would likely never have written anything. So extensive would his influence over me have soon become. You don't really explain what you mean by that, and I was curious what... Well, <clears throat> I mean, my father was a country man, and he had gotten out of the, out of the seventh grade. My mother got out of the ninth grade, and, and when he died, I was 16. If, and I was also at that point in some growing trouble with the police and um, for crimes of various sort I was committing. And... Um, 
he was sympathetic to the fact that I had been in trouble, and my mother was unsympathetic to the fact that I had been in trouble. But together, they were just about to exert a big hold on me. Because, mm. I mean, I was an only child, and they were strong parents, and, and I, even as rebellious as I might have become, they were going to determine my life. And how they would have determined my life was that I would have had a life like theirs, I think. I think they would have thought, well, you need to get a job. You, you're, not, you're not a good student. You don't do well in school. Um, you, you need to not go to university. Mm. Maybe you need to go in the military. But you need to go out and get a job. Because I had a cousin <clears throat> from Arkansas who my father put to work in the, for the company that my father worked for. And he went on, this, this young man, Amy Carroll, um, worked his whole life that way. And that's what would have happened to me. Okay. I mean, I would have never reached the point I, at, at which the idea that one could be a writer would have had an impact on me. Mm. I mean, we lived in Jackson. We saw Eudora all, relatively all the time. I knew that there were such things as writers. And I knew that even in our little town, one could become one. But it would never have dawned on me that that person would have been myself. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just wouldn't have come up. And there's a moment where uh, I think you were eight or nine at, at the time of this moment that you recall where you were in the local grocery shop with your mother. Yes. And she pointed to a woman standing at the other end of the store and said, that's Eudora Welty. That's right. And um, She did do that. And you say you weren't even 100% certain that it was Eudora Welty. But what, what struck you, I think, was that, that this was something your mother found yeah. remarkable <clears throat> and something that you would be interested in. Um, well, at does eight, that connect? at eight, what I understood was that the tone of my mother's voice was such that she accorded to the words Eudora Welty a certain reverence. Mm. And, and that's all I knew. Yeah. And I don't know if my mother had ever read a story of Eudora's um, or as you, as you say, or as I say too, I don't know if that's who it was. Yeah. Uh, so what I, matters <clears throat> is that she, she thought, she it, thought was. it was important. And I, and I saw, okay, being a writer, hmm, I was eight. Mm. You know, big deal. And you, re you remembered that. I do, and I've to I told Eudora that. I told Eudora that more than once. Mm. She, she, th she thought it was quite amusing. <laughs> yeah. You might not have remembered it if you hadn't had the, the writerly right. kernel in you. I might, I might not. It was also the case, as I told Christina the other day, that Elvis Presley was constantly going through our town on his motorcycle, on his Cadillac. And, and so we would see him sometimes at, the, at the, one of the filling stations, uh, putting gas in his car. And, and um, the, 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 the dime store, the Woolworths in our town, started advertising pictures of Eudora, of, of Elvis Presley. And you'd come down and pay a dollar for them. So my friends and I immediately ran down to Woolworths and bought these pictures of Elvis and put them up on our um, locker in, in school. And then Elvis presently came on the Ed Sullivan show on television. And what we saw was that the picture that this guy had sold us <laughs> was not Elvis Presley at all. <laughs> so I, I, I only tell that story. I mean, we were idiots, of course. But, 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 but I only said... But, but it's possible this wasn't even Eudora Welty, yeah, and then my yeah. mother thought it was Eudora yeah, Welty, and just yeah. told me it was. It yeah. makes a good story. <laughs> you couldn't do a Google image search. <laughs> no, I, no, no. Um, there's another passage I'd love you to read, if you would. Um, this is about a conversation between yourself and your mother mm. after your father's death. 
Yeah. Um, this is the one that begins on page 117. I need help here. <laughs> You're not hearing. Well, well, thank you for saying so. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad if we can do that. How about over on this side? Well, you're so polite. <laughs> well, okay, well, we'll try to, maybe I'll, you know, I'll just talk louder. How's that? That, 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 might, that might Is that help. better? It's, it's, oh, good. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, we had no idea. We did not. What page was that on again, Brendan? Um, 117. 117, yes. 117. Sorry. <clears throat> not long after my father's funeral, when I was back in school, and the neighbors had stopped calling and visiting and bringing over dishes of food when grief and mourning had become indistinguishable. My mother sat me down and became specific about the formal features of her life now. She was 50, she said. Her husband was dead. She had a son, me, who seemed mostly all right, but was veering into lost scrapes, and so she needed to pay, he, <clears throat> she needed to pay attention. We were now going to have to be more independent of him certainly, because he was gone, but of each other too. She was going to have to get a job. I was only 16, but she would not be able to, to look after me as she had. We agreed that I had a future and that we would try to look after each other, but I would have to look after me now. We would be partners, is what I remember thinking. My father, as I've told, had never been around and much had never been around much because of his work, and this new absence, death, was for me not so strongly felt as even I imagined it would be. I already, in fact, felt more in charge of myself, so a partnership with my mother, one in which she would not notice me so closely, seemed like a good arrangement. I was to, <clears throat> I was to stay out of jail because she didn't want to have to get me out, couldn't get me out, she said. I was to find friends I could rely on. I could have a, my own car. I could go away in the summers to find a job in Little Rock with my grandparents and return to school in Jackson in the fall. I was freer, but would have to be more responsible. She was trying not to stay too much. She didn't want everything to have to be explicit, since so much was. Whereas when my father was alive, so little had needed to be. Not being too explicit would give her a chance and time to adjust, to think about things, to become whatever she could or would have to become in order to get along from there on out. I don't remember <clears throat> the exact chronological order of things commencing now, 1960, 61, 62, time whirled by. I was a 10th grader and on, but I did not get brought before the juvenile court again. I did live summers with my grandparents who ran their big hotel in Little Rock. My grandfather bought me a black 57 Ford, which fa fairly quickly got stolen. I got beaten up a time or two and then got some new friends. I did what I was told, in other words. I started to grow up in a hurry. <clears throat> Thank you.
really sorry you all aren't, weren't here. That makes me wish we could just go back and do it all over again. <laughs> um, so, you, as you've described, this is a moment of growing up and a moment where your, your mother says she needs you to take certain responsibilities. Would you connect that in your mind with, with the door that opened whereby becoming a writer rather than doing something more conventional? No. Um, or was that... No, I really would not. I mean, I, it just be, it became, it was the moment at which I became an obedient son. Okay. And not, and not anything else. I mean, I, <clears throat> I was, my grandfather in Little Rock, who ran this big hotel where I was much of the time after my father died, wanted me to have a more um, enlarged future than my parents had, so he persuaded me that what I needed to do was be a hotel manager. Because <clears throat> he had done well at it, and I loved the hotel, and so we made a, made a plan whereby I would go off to school at Michigan State because they taught host, hotel science at Michigan State, and so that's that's what I had in mind. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to be uh, be that. I mean, I didn't have any other ideas, believe me, because <clears throat> I was a poor student, trouble with the police, transgressive by nature, difficult dyslexic, I was happy to have somebody tell me what to do. Okay. Yeah. But you also say, at one point you say, in, in explaining the decision to go to Michigan rather than somewhere <coughs> closer to home, uh, you say, I wanted distance. Well, where, yeah. Where did that come from? That <coughs> well, it came from Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, it, <coughs> it came from realizing that if I went to school at the University of Mississippi, I was just going to take whoever that little boy was in Jackson right up the road to Oxford, Mississippi, and be that person up there. Yeah. It was all about race, really. It was about and about realizing, and this is this is one of those, <coughs> this is one of those moments which does not necessarily lead a person to be a writer, but it certainly leads a person somewhere. I, I realized that, that, that how I was experiencing life in Mississippi uh, was different from the way I was supposed to experience life in Mississippi. There was just a discrepancy, and it's an important point in anybody's life, and probably all of us have had it. It can lead you to be a writer. <clears throat> it can lead you to be a civil rights lawyer. It can lead you to be a police officer. It can lead you to be all kinds of things when you realize that there is this discrepancy that the conventional wisdom, the way things are going along, is not how you feel. And I, I had that experience very strongly, yeah. 1962, 1961, all, and this happened to be about race. I just wasn't a race hater. I did my best to try to conform to what was going on <clears throat> in Jackson at the time. I just couldn't bring it off. I just didn't have it in me. Who knows why? Thank goodness. Because yeah. a lot of my friends did, and they all voted for Trump. <clears throat> I was wondering if that name would arise in this conversation. Well, it's sort of <laughs> the ugly elephant in the room. <clears throat> Indeed, hard to avoid. <laughs> yeah. um, there's another beautiful passage about your mother. Um, as a widow, um, she, lived, she lived for quite a long time, as, as you said, to 1981. Um, yeah. uh, and her life changed in various ways um, in those decades. Um, without your father. Um, and there's one sentence that really grabbed me um, where you're summarizing what you understood her outlook to be. You say, sort of channeling her, you say, life lived efficiently 
wouldn't save you, but it would prepare you for what you couldn't be saved from. And you've been describing how the efficiencies of her life and the, the sort of narrowness and carefulness of her life in those years. <clears throat> that's, a, that's an interesting sentence to me, hearing it. I wrote it. <laughs> <clears throat> but it, but it, it kind of gets to the heart of the difference between fiction, writing fiction and writing nonfiction. Uh, <clears throat> a life lived efficiently wouldn't save you, but it would prepare you for what you couldn't be saved from. You, you can write a sentence like that in a novel, obviously. You've read sentences like that in a novel. But if you write it in a piece of memoir, you have to ask a question that you would never ask in writing a novel. You have to ask, is that true of my mother? I can, my, my mother is not made of words, such as is a character in a piece of fiction. So you have to ask that really quintessential question, I'm saying this about her. Is it true? And there's a line of, <clears throat> there's a line of uh, Northrop Fry's uh, who, who, who said, and there's a, there's a line of Seamus's too, which I think I have still in my brain. <clears throat> Fry says that, that literature is a disinterested use of words. You must have nothing writing on the outcome. And what that means is that, that when you write a piece of fiction, you're not following a script. If you change a word in a sentence or if you make a judgment of a character, that becomes who that character is and what that character is all about. <coughs> Seamus, Seamus, I think it's in his Nobel address, says um, <coughs> that, that poetry allows you to repose in the stability of a musically satisfying order of sounds. To repose in the stability of a musically satisfying order of sounds, which we all do when we read a poem of Seamus's. And <clears throat> that's not what you do in a piece of nonfiction. You don't repose in that. You, you, you repose only in the fact. Mm. You repose in the truth. So what I'm going to say about my mother has to be true about her. Mm. And yet I think this book <clears throat> achieves poetry precisely through that sort of discipline that you're talking about. It, do, it doesn't mean I don't have to work on the sentences. I do have to do that, <clears throat> but, I, but I've been choosing words. I have to choose words according to that template, yeah. that really crucial template. I mean, there are lots of people who write what is called creative nonfiction in America, which is just baloney. <laughs> <clears throat> but, but mine is not creative nonfiction. Mine is an essay about my mother based on facts. Mm. But when you're writing those sentences, you're still choosing words and, you know, just, just as is true when you're um, writing anything. You mm -hmm. have to choose the right word. I mean, that's what writing is. I choose this word, and then I choose that word, and then I choose that word, and I choose that word. As an example, perhaps, of, <coughs> of the sort of efficiency um, you're talking about in your mother's life, I, I wonder if you could read us one last passage. <coughs> um, sure. This is about a man um, called Matt Matthews, who, yes. uh, with whom... <coughs> With you know, whom your mother had a relationship. She had a something. Something. <laughs> Page 120. Thank you. You'll soon see what she had. <clears throat> I laugh now. <clears throat> and there was at least one boyfriend during that time, it was after my father died. 
a married man from Tupelo named Matt Matthews who lived in the apartment building where she had worked as the rental agent. He was a big, bluff, good-natured man, possibly in the furniture business, who drove a Lincoln Continental with an automatic pistol strapped to the steering column. I liked him. I liked it that my mother liked him. It didn't matter that he was married, not to me, and I guess not to my mother. I really have no idea about what was between them, what they did alone. He took her on drives, flew her to Memphis in his airplane, acted respectfully toward both of us. She may have told me she was just passing time with him, getting her mind off her woes, letting someone be nice to her. We both knew that nothing she told me about him had to match the truth. I sometimes wished that she could marry him, and at other times I was c content to have them be lovers if that's what they were. He had sons near my age. Later I would meet them and like them, but this was long after he and my mother were finished. What finished them <clears throat> was brought on by me, but was not completely my doing. Matt had faded for a time. His business brought him into Jackson Less, and he was often away for months. My mother had quit talking about him, and our life had returned to its almost normal level, the level of having my father be dead. I was having my usual bitter time in school, getting an F in algebra I'd already failed once, and having no idea about how I could improve. My mother was cashiering nights at the Robert E. Lee Hotel and coming home by 11. But then one night, <clears throat> she didn't come home. I had a test the next day, algebra, and I must have been in an agitated state of mind. I called the hotel and heard that she had left on time. And for some reason, this scared me. I got in my Ford and drove down to the street by the hotel, Griffin St Griffith Street, a fringe neighborhood near a black section of town where I thought she might not be safe. I drove around until I found her car, <clears throat> the gray and pink Oldsmobile 88 that had been my father's last car and his pride and joy. It was parked under some crepe myrtles across from Sterling Towers where Matt kept his place, something I knew about since it was how they'd met. It was close to the hotel, and for some reason, I must have panicked. There was no clear reason to, but I did. I'm not sure what I thought, but thinking of it now, I believe I only wanted to ask Matt if he was there, if he knew where my mother was. This may be right, though it's possible too, that I knew she was there and wanted to make her leave. I went to the building. <clears throat> it must have been near midnight. There was no security guard. I found Matt's name on the directory and went up the elevator and down the hall to his door, and I banged on it. I hit the door very hard with my fists. Then I waited. Matt opened the door, and my mother was there in the room behind him. She had a drink in her hand. Lights were on, and she was standing in the middle of the room. Nothing was out of order. It was a nice apartment. Both of them were shocked by me, and I was already ashamed to be there. But I was, I think, terrified. Not that she was there or that I was alone but just that I didn't know what in the hell. Where was she? What else was, going, was I going to have to lose? I remember being out of breath. I was 17 years old. I can't remember much of what anybody said or did except me, briefly. Where have you been? I said to her behind him, or I said words to that effect. <clears throat> I didn't know where you are, where you were, that's all. 
And that was all. All of that. Matt said very little. My mother <clears throat> immediately got her coat. Oh, Richard, for God's sake, she said, go home. We both went home in two cars. In the house, she acted annoyed at me, and I was mad at her. We talked. Eventually, she told me she was sorry, and I told her I didn't care if she saw Matt, only that she should tell me when she'd be home late. She said she would. To my knowledge, she never saw Matt Matthews or any other man again as a lover for as long as she lived. Later, <clears throat> years later, when she was dying, I tried to explain it all to her again, my part, what I thought, had thought, as if we could still open it and repair that night. All she needed to do was call me, or even now, years later, say she would have called me, but that was not how she saw it. She just looked impatient and shook her head in her hospital bed. Oh, that, she said. My God, that was just silliness. You had no business coming up there. You were out of your mind. I just saw, though, that I couldn't be doing things like that. I had a son to raise. She looked disgusted at everything. All the cards the fates had dealt her. A no-good childhood. My father, then his death. Me, her own inability to vault over all of it to a better life. It was another proof of something bad, the likes of which I believed she felt she'd had plenty. Some, somebody asked me if that was a hard passage to write, and the answer is no. <laughs> it wasn't. You know, <clears throat> nothing's hard to write. It's hard to live sometimes, <laughs> but not hard to write. You've, you've talked already a bit about <clears throat> the, the sorts of disciplines, um, the discipline under which you wrote this book. Um, you, you wrote about your mother and your father separately rather than as a, as a married couple or as a unit because you wanted to give each of them <coughs> their due as individuals. Um, and I think you write uh, as little about yourself in this book as you can sort of get away with, given that so much of it uh, arises from your own True. recollections or from things you heard. Um, and that's one of the things that gives this book its power is, is that that discipline. At the same time, I, think, I don't think anyone will be able to read this book without thinking that there's another book to be written hmm. about you know, <coughs> a, a proper Richard Ford memoir. Do you have any... Um... It's not by me. <laughs> um, uh, no, no. I, I'm, I'm like most people who do what I do for a living. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to lead an interesting life. I'm trying to lead a useful life. And my use in writing books is that. I, I want time to write. I want the opportunity to do that. And it, it keeps you in one place it's a lot. And um, there aren't very many cavalry charges in my life. Uh, no lions jumping through windows and things like that. It's just, just I'm writing books. And so I, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't think I would want to write a, a memoir of my life. And the other thing, too, is that, <clears throat> I mean, I realize there's kind of a a bold discrepancy between my parents' life and the life that Christina and I lead. Uh, we don't have children. They did. I'm a writer. They weren't. They were uneducated. We've gone through a lot of school. Uh, we've had the life we've had. <clears throat> but the truth of the matter is, 
I would, I would never try to say how that became that because it's so adventitious in so many ways. There's so many mistakes and so many moments you, you, you couldn't plan for or replicate. And it, 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 to, to not write about how the child of Edna and Parker Ford ends up being a, a novelist, um, to, to, to not write about that preserves it for me an essential mystery to life. Uh, <clears throat> I might write about such things in a novel. You know, uh, Mavis Gallant said, Wonderfully, she said, "If we knew what went on between a man and a woman, we wouldn't need literature." <laughs> <clears throat> but <clears throat> to try to account for that in my life, yeah, I wouldn't even—I wouldn't think of doing that because I would just end up making it up. I, I wouldn't be right. I, I couldn't be right because, as in all of our lives, the arc of our lives uh, can't very well be explained. Mm. Mine, mine not, more, not more dramatic than most people's, frankly. And the other thing you've done or refrained from doing, um, which I think probably most writers with comparable material would have been tempted to um, try to frame your parents' stories as emblematic of <coughs> the bigger story of the South or the state of the nation um, mm. or... Mm. Um, a uh, period piece, you know, something about uh, the United States in those decades. Um, were you even slightly tempted to do that, or, or, or just that no. never on the... No, no, I, 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 thought the, I thought the particulars were interesting enough. Yeah, And the specificity, to insist on the specificity, to insist on the smallness of their lives, was my goal uh, to make interesting. Mm. Um, I also believe with, with Blake that <clears throat> he who generalizes is a scoundrel <laughs> and that, that you can only do good in particulars. And so I thought as the person who was writing about my parents to try to draw radiant lines from their small lives to larger epical forces through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s would, would, wouldn't be true. <clears throat> it, just, it just wouldn't yeah. be true and it would be an arrogation of, of, of their, uh, of, I mean, I, of who they were. I mean, I, I, would, I, I wanted to write this so that if you were, could ever have encountered my parents on the street and having read my little stories about them, um, their lives, that you would recognize them. Now, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make them recognizable and, 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 and to aver a virtue uh, about them, but, but to make them be part of a larger <clears throat> historical, cultural, arc was, was not my goal, because I didn't think I could tell the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, you know, I, I'm much more interested in the sense that, that, that um, political, not, political fiction shows how history affects the lives of individuals. I'm not interested, as a novelist, I'm interested in mm -hmm. that. I'm not very interested in, 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 in how the lives of individuals reflect the larger zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That just doesn't interest me. Yeah. The, the, the inductive reasoning I like, the deductive reasoning I don't like. It's okay. not my, it's not my skill set. <laughs> well, the, this book um, succeeds entirely on those on those terms, and is is a bigger book, I think, in every way, um, for keeping its focus relatively narrow on your parents. Um, I know we're running close to being out of time. I don't know whether. Technology or acoustics allow questions, a couple of questions from the audience. 
Will we try that, or is that a bad idea? People in, I, I, I think people we have roving people microphones. in red shirts are moving around. We do around. have roving microphones um, <laughs> and people in red T-shirts. Um, would anyone like to ask a question? There's yes, a hand sir. over here. Hi. Richard, thank you for that. Um, you said earlier that your mother was not made of words and anything yes. you needed to write about her needed to be true. I'm sure that's the same for your father. But did writing either of the memoirs realize your parents for you, or at least bring you to a realization about them that you might not have had before that? Uh, it, it must be to some extent that, that, it, that, that it did. Um, <clears throat> what I said a little earlier about discovering that, that um, well, the, the, the title of the book is probably the uh, out, outcropping of that realization. I, I realized that I called it between them. It's my one little genius moment in this book. <clears throat> I, I thought I called it between them because I came from the union of these two people. And as soon as I was born, I literally bodily came between them. There, there are pictures in this book showing that. And, and, and yet what remained true was that the most important things that persisted in their lives was principally between them, including my life between them. So, so that's, something, that's something I realized. <clears throat> and it, 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 it's, it's, it's worth it to say what realize means to a, to a novelist or to a writer. It means I, I wrote that line, and, and when I wrote that line, I asked myself, just as I said a few moments ago, is that true? I wrote that. Is it true? Because if it's not true, I can take it out. And so I realized it by virtue of writing it, writing being a concentrated form of thinking, and then deciding to keep it, deciding to say, yes, I will stand beside that as being true. And so that's, that's probably the chief way in which I realized, as you, to use your phrase, and it's a good one, realized my parents in a way that had I not written about them, I, I wouldn't have. We have time for one more question. <clears throat> Would anyone else like to ask a question? Yes, sir. Yes, here. I just wonder, is there a way in which your father was between you and your mother? Um, you say between, between them. You were quite hard on, on your father, or, or brutally honest about him. And when he died, I think you said something like, um, there's some ways in which losing your father at 16 isn't a bad thing. And, and your life started. Is it possible that in some way your father was between you and your mother? You mean in the Oedipal Triangle? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> I mean, inevitably, eh? I mean, I, I, but I'm, it's not a thing I ever thought about. And, I, and until you just said that, I never thought about it. Uh, but, I, but I'll just, I don't want to be the only stupid one in the room and say, <laughs> nah, I couldn't possibly have him. I met maybe, but I mean, he was gone so much. I mean, I pretty much had her to myself as much, a great deal more than she wanted to have me to herself. <laughs> I guarantee you that. So we were frictive, my mother and I. So the thing that would, that would cause me not to not to tumble to that is that we were so frictive and that when my father was around, he and I had an almost halcyon relationship, but for those moments of temper, uh, which didn't happen much. 
Um, so, yeah, but no. Uh, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> um, but I, I also think I wasn't hard on my father, in, except that I just told the truth. I want all of that litany of things that he didn't teach me were just simply things he didn't teach me. Mm. Um, well, you know, that, that's just how life was. And, and, uh, and to say that after he died, I realized that, that I, I experienced some freedom that I did not anticipate is another one of those moments of discrepancy when how you're supposed to feel when your father dies, grief-stricken, on the way to mourning, lost, sympathetic, empathetic to him, sympathetic, empathetic to my mother. When I realized that I, that I felt that way, but I also felt that little fleck of freedom now in my life, almost immediately, that's another one of those discrepancies into which, I guess, art can delve. You know, there's a wonderful line of <clears throat> Octavio Paz. Paz has a little a little fragment, he says, between, between what I see and what I say, between what I say and what I keep silent, between what I keep silent and what I dream, between what I dream and what I forget is poetry. And it's in that discrepancy between how I felt and how I thought I was supposed to feel that I think some little fissure opened up and that allowed me to be, to some extent, Ultimately, not consciously at that moment, maybe a writer. Yeah. Yeah. It's been an enormous privilege, for, I think, for everyone in this room. I know I speak for everyone in this room. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry, no.